In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you begin a Google search with the words, is it a sin to? The first five suggestion options are cuss, drink, gamble, eat pork, and smoke. Similarly, when you start to search Google for, is it wrong for Christians? Before you even finish the word, Google will guess that your query is, is it wrong for Christians to gamble, to do yoga, to listen to secular music, to drink wine, and to play the lottery? While these are only the top suggested Google responses, I'm sure you could complete those sentences with any number of things that you or others have spent lots of time talking about, especially if you've spent time at a Christian college. Um, is it wrong for a Christian to vote Democrat? Is it wrong for a Christian to vote Republican? Is it wrong for a Christian to vote at all? Is it wrong for Christians to give full hugs, or do they have to do the side hug? Is that a God-honoring way of doing it? Is it a sin to watch The Bachelor? Is it a sin to watch Game of Thrones? All maybe important questions. This dates back hundreds of years, though. Menno Simons, a theological father of the Anabaptist movement, wrote a whole book called On the Ban, which instructed these radical reformers on how to properly exercise church discipline including but not limited to whether or not it was okay to still do business with someone who had been shunned from the community. It was. And while these questions can provide some help in guiding us as we try to follow Jesus faithfully, I think they are by themselves lacking. They can lead to an overly simplistic way of quantifying our walk with Jesus. When you insist that there are just two categories, things that are sin and things that aren't, your approach to life can become reduced to trying to think of which things are sinful and then considering everything else good. We become a, a horrible type of spiritual lawyer, using whatever methods we can to get ourselves off the hook. But a criminal courtroom can't pronounce you good. It can only pronounce you not guilty. In contrast, the New Testament, and Paul in particular, calls us to strive for a life that is just the reverse, more than just not guilty, but truly good. Now, that doesn't mean Paul has no categories of right or wrong, sin and righteousness. His letter to the Galatians begins with an account of how he confronted Peter to his face about separating himself from the Gentiles at meals. Paul's gospel, his account of the good news as he describes it in the letter, has a lot to do with the law, or at least the end of the law. When Paul starts at the beginning of Galatians 5 to speak of freedom in Christ and casting off the yoke of slavery, the slavery he's talking about is the law. The law helped you understand who was in and who was out. When you were righteous following the law, you could be assured that you were in. Men mark themselves as in through circumcision, and Paul uses that as this microcosm for this whole false confidence that comes from law following as justification. So when Peter continued to follow the custom of the law by separating himself from the Gentile believers, he was still living as if this act would be part of his identification as in. And it's in response to this separation as righteous identification that Paul insists that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no more male and female. The categories people used to understand who was justified, who was more righteous, don't apply in the Messiah Jesus. It is faith in him, the one who was faithful, the one who is righteous, that connects anyone to the covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham, to undo the work of sin in the world and in our lives, to bless and to be blessed. In Christ, you are free from having to parse out your own righteousness, from having to keep score and fret over which rules you have or have not broken. The TV show The Good Place is excellent, but it's a really bad way of understanding sin and righteousness, if you've seen it. 
In Christ you are free because in baptism his faithfulness becomes your faithfulness. If there's any good news this morning, hear this. Jesus is righteous when you have not been, are not, and most likely will not be. Jesus is righteous on your behalf. So we are free indeed. But Paul doesn't say that we're free to do whatever we want. In fact, we trade our slavery to the law and to sin to become slaves instead to one another and then to Christ. I find it nearly impossible to hear this language without invoking Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. Paul's antidote to all the infighting and jockeying for position that was going on in the Galatian church is to tell them that they've been freed from slavery only to become slaves to each other. And so the idea is, is you're free for a purpose. To help us get on board with this idea, we can remind ourselves of what humanity was created to be and to do. The goal for humanity from the beginning in the garden all the way into the life of the world to come isn't this unending long weekend at an all-expense-paid celestial resort where we sit in lawn chairs next to 80-degree pool and 80-degree weather and sip fruity drinks for all eternity. If your picture of Eden and of the new creation is sort of sanctified laziness, you haven't quite fully grasped it yet. We were made to be participants in the work of God, co-creators, and it's that vocation that sin pulls us from. The effect of sin isn't added work, it's a torn ACL, it's an injury that pulls us back from our vocation, which means that restoration isn't getting us to a place where we can simply not do evil anymore. Restoration, redemption is allowing us to fulfill our God-given design, like an athlete completing rehab and getting back into the game, coming out of injury. That's what redemption looks like. So let's look at Paul's lists here. We heard about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And we can look at the ways in which the works of the flesh are destructive, pulling us and others down from abundant life into chaos. They are sand in the engine of humanity, ripping it apart as it runs. But compare them with the fruit of the Spirit, how love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, these things serve others and reflect the image of God. Paul says, against these things there is no law because when we're producing the fruit of the Spirit, we no longer have to worry about nitpicking our lives to figure out if parking 10 extra minutes at the parking meter is a sin or not. So how is it that we can produce this fruit? Well, Paul's answer is, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, and that if you live by the Spirit, you should also be guided by the Spirit. And that sounds like very good instruction, but I think if that's all we had, taking those phrases on their face feels about as helpful as Paul telling us, just be better. Go ahead. Just follow the Spirit. Just do it. Now, I'm not going to try and stare deeply at Greek words here to unlock the secrets of crucifying the flesh. Maybe someone else who's better at Greek can do that. But hopefully I can offer some insight to help us go about the business of crucifying our old selves and walking with the Spirit. I think in these two phrases we see this cooperation between our conscious wills and God's work independent of our wills. So that first step is our conscious effort. Paul has a lot to say throughout his letters about crucifying our old self. For instance, in Romans 6, he instructs us to consider ourselves dead to sin. But in order to cast something off, to throw something away, you have to know what it is you are casting. You have to figure out what it is that's holding you back from God, to figure out not just the actions but the patterns of living that cause us to embody the works of the flesh. This is why I think it's more than just asking whether or not something is a sin. Instead of trying to litigate our every action, we can look for the fruit in our lives. 
When are you growing closer and closer to God? And when do you find yourself working, living out the works of the flesh? What has God used to produce fruit in my life? We need to put forth a conscious effort, stopping and reflecting on our patterns of sin so that we can bring them before Jesus in repentance and in trying to live a new life. I think about in 1 Corinthians, you can see Paul addressing these nitpicking ethical questions with the Corinthian, or, yeah, with the Corinthian church, like whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols or whether or not to celebrate certain feast days. And as you read through those chapters, it can seem like he's sort of playing both sides. You should do this, but maybe you shouldn't do this. But I think underneath we see Paul instructing a lot of self-examination of ourselves, of others. How do my actions affect others? What presuppositions am I bringing to this action? Am I eating this meat because it's nothing? Or am I eating this meat thinking that it was sacrificed to an idol and thinking that's not a big deal? There's a lot of gray area there. And we'd like Paul to tell us, here are the rules, here's what you can follow. But I think that instinct is because we don't want to have to do deep reflective work We just want God to tell us the exact pattern we follow and then to leave God out of the question. Forget you, I know what to do. Yeah, yeah, I know what to do. I say that all the time when people give me instructions. Tell me what to do and then leave me alone. It's not exactly the spiritual life. So there's this good work that we can and need to do in self-examination. But there's an illusion of control when we think that we can simply understand our frailty and then overcome it. Once I can name it, it can be easily defeated. It reminds you of the criticisms that people have about the Enneagram. Now, if you haven't heard of it before, the Enneagram is this personality typing model that's become relatively popular in Christian circles and then at the exact same time relatively unpopular in others. I can say it's helped me a great deal in understanding what motivates my own actions. The critiques, though, like critiques of Myers-Briggs or really any other personality inventory or assessment, is that it becomes sanctified navel-gazing. That all this self-reflection is just an opportunity to understand how you behave so that you can tell everybody else and then justify why you're obnoxious. (laughs) And then insist that everybody accepts you exactly the way you are just because you're a four. We get it, fours. You're unique and interesting just like every other four. I'm I'm just kidding. That was an Enneagram joke. And if you didn't get it, you should go read a book on the Enneagram. It'll be a lot funnier. I think it's a fair critique, but again, not of the Enneagram itself or any other work of discernment, but it's a critique of our ability to change ourselves by our own strength and insight. I don't know how many of you have tried, especially you who are parents, but anybody with small children have just tried to strong-arm patience into happening. It is nigh impossible, because in that moment, it is already too late. It's already too late in that moment to say, I'd like to make fruit happen. Fruit takes a long time to grow. Doing the self-reflection is just the beginning of the process. It's why Paul exhorts the Galatians to be led by the Spirit. Once you pick up your cross, you have to start walking. It's only through God's work in our lives that we become more and more like Jesus. And dying to ourselves might also include putting to death our ideas about how we want our transformation to occur. We prayed in the collect this morning asking God to pour out the gift of love into our hearts because otherwise we won't have the love of God in our lives. Malcolm Gladwell will not help us become more and more like Christ. You can't just put in 10,000 hours and be holy. We must receive help from outside ourselves. Because fruit is produced by something. It shows connection of the branches being nourished by a tree. It's the display, the product of the kind of tree that exists. So the only way we can produce the fruit of the Spirit is by leaning on and receiving from the Spirit, nourishing us, providing us with what we need to bear the fruit in the first place. 
But I think at this point, I'm still talking in Christianese. I'm saying, just lean into the Spirit. Just do it. It's platitudes about having the Spirit guiding us without any practical advice. So I'll take a stab, and you'll forgive me if it's entirely useless for you. If it doesn't work, go and pray about it and find out your own way. (laughs) Here's my stab. I once heard someone define themselves as conservative in that they generally felt like there was wisdom in how people have done things for hundreds of years that wasn't immediately apparent. So any change that he would do should be done with caution, right? Maybe there's wisdom in the fact that we've done this thing the same way for centuries, and so I shouldn't just change it right off the bat without strong consideration. I don't know if I'm conservative in any other sense of the word, but I'd like to be conservative in that way, mostly because I've seen how things turn out when I do the opposite. When I was younger, I got this idea that sort of the highest form of reading scripture was when it was read authentically. You can put really heavy quotes around that word, authentically. So I quit the twice daily habit of reading through the devotionals that my parents bought me in favor of reading passages of my choice when I felt like it. And initially, it was actually really great. I was reading chunks of scripture at a time, much more than I would read with these devotional books. I would find connections I hadn't seen before. I chased these picturesque, quiet time moments, looking for warm, fuzzy God moments. Ultimately, though, to my own detriment, because sometimes the work of the spiritual life is dull. Sometimes prayer feels empty, and as that initial high wore off, I read less and less, and I read less frequently and less frequently, and I torpedo what was mostly a healthy practice of scripture reading and prayer in just a few years. Very quickly, I went from reading scripture twice daily to reading scripture once bi-weekly, and it all happened because what I thought I wanted to do was have really big mountaintop experiences every single day, and you just can't live life that way. Our Anglican heritage is that of Thomas Cranmer, who envisioned people, communities who read scripture and prayed daily, guided by a calendar, a reading plan that had them go through most of scripture and all of the Psalter. And so I cannot more strongly advocate those boring, basic, tedious practices of daily prayer and scripture reading. Do go back, grab one of those little prayer booklets, go online, find the app, find something that you can use that forces you to daily read prayer. Add to it moments of silence and reflection. Take advantage of those moments in morning prayer where you can just stop for a minute and pray for whatever you feel like praying about or just to be quiet. Where in order to be guided by the Spirit, we actually maybe ask the Holy Spirit to help and guide us and then sit and listen and see what comes to mind even when, and especially when, you don't notice immediate warm feelings. When you're doing your daily, or maybe every other day, or however frequently you can do it, when you do those spiritual practices and they seem to yield nothing, that's a time to lean further into it, not to find that practice to suddenly be not worthwhile. We almost always see the ways in which God works in our lives in hindsight, after we faithfully come before him. We can see how that sort of habit, that faithfulness has built something up so that in those moments where someone is being incredibly trying, you have the patience for them. You have love for them that didn't come from you. It came from God who was slowly putting it into your life. Every single day, you had a dry and boring time of prayer. Don't forego self-reflection. Cherish those times when you're ministered to in the moment. It's not as if God won't speak to you in those moments. And when you have that, when you have a great warm, fuzzy day, Thank God for it. But in an ever-distracted age where we want immediate results and are trained to expect instant feedback, we've never been in a greater need for God to do the slow work of spiritual growth through silence and prayer.
regular habitual disciplines. And please bring in other Christians to help in that process, as scary as it can be to allow other people into your life. Including others helps us have someone else point out where fruit is growing or maybe not growing in our lives. Other people can often see that fruit before you do. It allows the diversity of the gifts of the body of Christ to sharpen us, inspire us, and ultimately bring us back to the God who gave us all these gifts in the first place. There is no New Testament spirituality outside of the body of Christ. And if you leave this morning with a personal plan of spiritual growth absent from other people, where you are going to do this new thing by yourself, you'll walk away with a spirituality that would be foreign to Paul and the other apostles. Part of the point of the body of Christ is for us to be for one another. You'll note that in this passage, Paul warns the Galatians not to take their freedom and use it to bite and devour one another. Remember that God doesn't give us, through Paul, this list of the fruit of the Spirit so that we can put each other on trial, so we can examine ourselves, help others examine themselves, and in the context of the church, grow grow more and more into the image of the body of Christ. Paul reminds us that the whole law is summed up in one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So this morning, I pray that we would all seek in real, tangible, boring, tedious ways to crucify the flesh, those things that pull us from following Christ, and that we would find ourselves guided by the Spirit so that that Spirit might produce more and more fruit in our lives, enabling us to live into the glorious freedom that has been given us in Christ, freedom to be exactly as God created us to be, a people who love and serve each other and are a blessing to the world. Amen.